The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time now for our remembering Desert Shield and Desert Star. And we have a and no one that is that. We have found that people don't remember Desert Shield and Desert Storm and. Uh, uh, while I'm thinking about it, we r- want to remind everybody to get a some paper and a pencil and uh, be ready to write something down because our host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg, always says something that uh, is worth remembering and writing down. So uh, have that pen and paper ready and let's get started. And we always start, Phil's on the line with us, we always start... Each of our veteran or military type shows with a silent prayer and we'll be back in one minute and then we'll go to what we do the next time. Thank you and amen. So, we have taken care of that and there's, we always do one other thing. Make sure everybody's heart's pumping and we're going to do it right now. And there you go. We have to start with our cadence call. And uh want to thank everybody for tuning in today. And, Philip, how are you doing this morning? I'm well, David. How about yourself? If I was any better, uh, it's like my grandfather. Now, you you're probably, you probably can remember this. Um, like my grandfather said, if I was, I'm like a woman in a hobble skirt, I haven't got any room for kicking. And uh, I don't know if you remember hobble skirts or not, but uh, they there wasn't much room in it. Women could barely walk in them, much less kick. So uh, anyway, uh, those idioms are, I love idioms. And, uh, you know, the, the one about uh, it's as useful as a screen door on a submarine or any of those, I love them. And... Uh, you get you get a few of those when you're sitting at a table with uh, a group of uh, veterans, 
and they start telling stories and uh, they they can come up with some idioms that are just absolutely fantastic and so with that being said we're going to be talking about the reality of remembering desert shield and desert storm and uh uh so i'm going to turn it over to you phil well david let's see today is uh january the 30th unless you're listening on a pre-recorded podcast the uh, the thing i remember about january uh late january of uh 1991 was that uh, we were um, engaged in an air war um, and uh, we had not sent our ground troops in yet but we were fixing to do that very thing um, you know the first thing we did during the air war was to go out and blow up uh all of the Iraqi... Well, the very first thing we did, we sent uh, a flight of Apaches, uh, Apache helicopters uh, in, uh, and, of course, they had to be guided by um, a uh, an Air Force uh, Pavlo helicopter because of uh, the navigation system on the Pavlo uh, allowed better uh, nap of the earth uh, terrain following radar so the, the Air Force uh, provided the, the guide helicopter and the Apaches went in and the first target they had was uh, the main air defense uh, command and control system for Iraq so uh, they used their Hellfire missiles to knock that out and the moment <clears throat> that was done uh, we sent the uh, all of our fast movers up with uh, what's known as a high-speed high anti-radiation missile or a harm missile. And uh, <clears throat> they could uh, basically fly down the beam of uh, any uh, radar transmitter that was out there right down to the transmitter itself. And when it got there, well, it would uh, explode uh, making that. <clears throat> radar transmitter of no value and of course you might think well radar what's, what's the importance of that well that's the, that's how you can see in the, on the battlefield you can see at night you can see who's coming um, and so uh, the first thing we did uh, after we knocked out their uh, ability to coordinate all this stuff we knocked out basically their eyes and so <clears throat> we spent a good time doing that uh, a good amount of time, rather, and uh, we, um, and then we began to uh, bomb. I, I remember when the uh, the F, uh, the B fifty two started coming in from uh, Diego Garcia out in the Indian Ocean. Uh, they would come in flight of three, and of course, oh, they were up around thirty thousand feet or so, I guess, when they did their bombing run. And they would fly to three aircraft, and each B-52 has eight engines on it. So up in uh, that <clears throat> level where I was not flying, I flew generally between between ten and 12,000 feet. Uh, but I could look up into a nice clear blue sky 
and just see formations of contrails. And if you follow them to the very front, you can maybe just make out these B-52s, which are pretty easy to make out on the ramp. It's a very large aircraft, but, you know, when it's several thousand feet above you, not so much. Uh, but, you know, I could just tell by the number of contrails. And contrail, of course, is a condensation trail. It's those white cloud-looking things. They actually are clouds, but uh, they're generated from moisture that's in the air, but when you're suddenly um, uh, heating it at a very cold temperature, air is getting suddenly heated and introduced to the air around it. There's a condensation of whatever moisture may be in there, makes a little straight cloud through the sky, and that dissipates over time. But the um, you could clearly see that there were flights of three B-52s. I can recall flying some of my... Uh, side-looking airborne radar missions and uh, looking up through the uh, through the canopy at, <clears throat> at the B-52s flying along the formations of three and I would turn to my um, observer who was the only other person in the aircraft for me I would just say somebody's going to get hurt because they, they were carrying thousands and thousands of pounds of uh, bombs uh, to drop. And of course, they weren't dropping them blind in the desert. They were dropping them in locations that we had found through our SLAR missions. We had found their troop concentrations and their main supply routes and the times of day that they moved. And uh, overlaying other intelligence upon that, we were able to get a very good picture of what was on, on the battlefield below. And for some reason, the uh, the Iraqis had given us uh, about close to a three-month head start to gather information on their uh, how their units were deployed. And so uh, our bombing was very, very, very effective. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's what, that's what I remember about early January. We were still didn't know if we were going to go in on the ground. But uh, Saddam apparently, um, since he wasn't absorbing all the bombs from the B-52s, it was his troops that were out there. He uh, he elected to stay in Baghdad and, uh, you know, say, I'll, I'll fight to the last man. Um, so um, these poor guys, you know, had to endure this rain of uh, TNT and uh, hot steel that was coming down on them. Um, and then uh, it wasn't until uh, later in February when, when we unleashed our, our ground troops and I got to tell you they were chomping at the bit to go um, back uh, several years before that I was uh, part of a ceremonial horse cavalry unit in, uh, at Fort Huachuca, Arizona uh, it was called B Troop of the Fourth Cavalry, and uh, we did that on our on our off time. The, the army supplied us all everything we need we needed to uh, reenact uh, battles from uh, circa 1881 uh, horse cavalry uh, in the desert southwest. They had chosen B Troop Fourth Cavalry because they were the unit 
that had accepted the surrender of Geronimo out in Arizona. We did parades and demonstrations for folks. It was mostly a recruiting type uh, thing. But but I recall... We had one maneuver, which was the cavalry charge. Uh, in order to do that, we would have to form the horses into a, a line abreast uh, of all of all our assembled horses, and we had about 25 of them. And then uh, the command was given, draw sabers. And, uh, of course, we'd, we'd draw out our uh, Model 1860 cavalry sabers and hold them at the ready um, and then uh, the command uh, for the charge was given and then the, the bugler would, would sound the charge like just like you've seen in the movies And uh, but I will tell you this the horses that we used they all belonged to the army and they had all done this maneuver over and over and over again and you could tell the really um the really seasoned horses didn't even flinch uh, at the sound of uh, the firing of our cannon or the, the uh, firing of uh, carbines or pistols uh, from, uh, you know, we're sitting in the saddle firing these things. And, and that's something about a horse, you know. They, uh, they really knew uh, what was going on, and they really were into it. Break and time. You've heard the expression, chomping at the bit. When we would form into line and draw our sabers, the horses were nearly uncontrollable. Some of them were rearing up. Uh, some of them were, you know, just uh, pawing the ground. Let's take and, a break, Phil. All right. Go ahead. Okay. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back uh, and talking about horses on Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. We'll be right back. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. On August 8th, 2022, in violation of the Fourth Amendment, the FBI performed a most egregious search of a former president's home. The Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution provides that the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched, and the persons or things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment originally enforced the notion that each man's home is his castle, secure from unreasonable searches and seizures of property by the government. We must take a stand, and take back our country. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes, by voting locally for conservative Republicans. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And you're also listening to Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we've turned it over to the horses today, which I find fascinating. And... Um, as a, I've never grown up and when I'm watching a western and the cavalry's involved and, uh, the bugler sounds charge, to me that's just a beautiful scene and, uh, it must have been quite a thrill for you, Phil, to uh, be able to participate in that. Yeah, well, what I was about to say, uh, David, was that these horses knew exactly what was about to happen. And uh, they uh, would be chomping at the bit, pawing the ground, but of course we'd be restraining them. Uh, the reason they were chomping at the bit was we were pulling the bit back in their mouth to keep them in place. Uh, but when that charge sounded, they took off like a shot. Uh, it was like it was, you know, God had made them to be fast horses, and that's what they were going to do. Uh, and they, uh, so I say all this just to tell you what our troops were like, uh, before we went in on the ground. I mean, there was a certain amount of anxiousness, but on the other hand, you know, they'd been sitting in the desert for months, uh, not knowing if they were going to practice their craft or if they were just going to sit there and look look dangerous to the enemy and when they when they were given the the order to go they did not hold back in the very slightest and it, you know warfare is an ugly thing but this was uh, it was an element of beauty to it you know um, as you were talking about the horses uh, chomping at the bits uh, I don't know if you've uh, ridden in a situation working cattle or anything, but a uh, cutting horse, you know, my uncle told me when I'd work at his ranch, you know, the horse knows more than you do, so, you know, just be prepared to uh, let him take the take the reins and do what he knows best. and uh, Let him teach you. And let him teach you, and, and hopefully you'll stay in the saddle. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was never thrown, thankfully, but, uh, many times the horse, it was almost like they could read the cattle's mind that, you know, you're, uh, a calf or something was gonna stray from the herd and that horse would be on top of that calf within seconds and get him back into the, back into the herd. And, uh, I watch, a lot of westerns and uh you never you never see the cowboys giving the horse the the reins to do their own thing like like we did but uh and i i can certainly envision the horses chomping at the bits and they're ready to go it's just like it's just like a, a quarter horse or a, a thoroughbred that's in the kentucky derby or something you know that as soon as they hear the you know um trumpets blow they know what what they're about to do and uh i love that yeah yeah they're they're uh, actually a wonderful animal for for warfare too 
you know, sort of like dogs, if you've ever seen dogs uh, being used by police officers, they, get, they have nothing in mind about their own safety. It's, it's all about doing the mission. Mm-hmm. And you would be surprised the way horses are. Uh, you know, I've never ridden a horse in actual combat, but they sure give you the impression that they wouldn't hold back. Um, they're just, just marvelous. Uh, I guess it was the the Mongols that you know specialized. In. They were genius using these animals to be harness this uh, type of power. Uh, it's, it's amazing for warfare. But of course, we had you know uh, tanks and uh, armored uh, infantry fighting vehicles and. Uh, not least of which helicopters, uh, which made for pretty good mounts for uh, for our troops. I remember the, uh, the 101st. You know, if you think back to Normandy, the 101st and the 82nd uh, jumped into Normandy, you know, in advance of the American troops, and uh, they were sort of lambs to the slaughter to, to keep the Panzer divisions from getting uh, to reinforce the, the German defenses on the coast, and you know, they didn't have much. And all the all the planning, all the technology, they, they used the, every bit of technology that they could muster uh, for that Operation Overlord. But, you know, if they had had a few good helicopters, um, they really... <laughs> you know, we used to say when I used to fly helicopters, that you never need a helicopter... So you need one really bad, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know they're not—they're not inexpensive to operate. But um, you know, I used to tell people about your, their army, or navy, or air force. They're not very cost-effective, but they're more than effective when you when you engage them for what they were intended. And if if you're wounded. You don't care what the plane costs, just as long as that dust off gets there. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that that was wonderful. Another thing I was thinking about Desert Storm, uh, David, was that uh, you know years ago, and I've told. You, listeners this in the past my my grandfather fought in uh, World War one and when I went about set about to uh, uh, kind of do a shadow box for his uh, wound certificate I wanted to include a uh, uh, a World War one victory medal and I got that on eBay but in my searches I discovered that there was a New York State World War one well, they didn't call it World War One. They called it a World War Service Medal. It was uh, awarded to uh, folks from the New York National Guard divisions that had gone to serve in the First World War. So I incorporated that. But I, I got a little curious and thought, um, well, what states might have offered uh, awards uh, of either medal or ribbon uh, to their um, residents uh, who... Uh, served in Desert Shield or Desert Storm. And uh, I discovered that there's a total of uh, 
Well, I, I, I can't tell you but how many, but I can tell you who they are. Um, the states of, uh, you got your pencil ready, Alabama, Arizona, Connecticut, Guam, not a state, but a territory, Guam, the government of Guam did issue a, uh, a ribbon or a medal, um, Indiana, Massachusetts, Missouri, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Texas, Vermont, and Wisconsin. And if I am uh, wrong, then somebody correct me about uh, other states I may have left out. My source for this uh, is uh, Al Gore's Amazing Internet. So uh, I'll allow that I could be wrong in some of those uh, or have omitted some that are there. But, um, yeah, and I, I think that I think that's nice. Now, some of them, like, for instance, New Jersey, the qualification, you, you didn't have to be in the New Jersey Guard. You just had to be a resident of New Jersey when you entered the armed forces, uh, whichever component. Um, and in other states, it's just for their National Guard. Now, and another thing you need to remember is um, if you're serving on active duty, uh, you can only wear these uh, state awards if you're uh, in your state. They're not recognized as federal awards, so they're perfectly legal to put on your uniform in your state. Once you leave the state, you uh, you have to take those off if you're wearing an active duty uniform. Again, something people should write down. I didn't know that. In fact, I was sort of surprised when you started off on that, that a state can, you know, it's like the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Uh, this is after you've retired that you can be inducted into the uh, Hall of Fame here in Georgia, but uh, I didn't even know that states could, uh, and and you just answered that question too, they can present the honor, present the ribbon, or present the medal, or whatever it happens to be, but it's strictly a state situation, and uh, uh, it's not, uh, from what you're saying, it's not to be worn in a in a federal situation. No, it's not. In fact, um, the uh, <clears throat> the National Guard uh, uh, belongs to the governor of the state, and they issue federal recognition of a major general, two stars, to the Army or Air Force general who is the adjutant general of that state. Um is the adjutant general and not the commanding general of the state because the uh, governor of the state is the commander-in-chief of the state uh, National Guard Force. But um, they give him a one-star billet. Well, uh, I'll, I'll leave out the, the state, but when I was at National Guard Bureau, there was one state that the state legislature said, well, 
we're going to make our adjutant general uh, a lieutenant general, three stars instead of two stars. And uh, it was uh, all well and good, but at National Guard Bureau, they were very quick to point out to the adjutant general of this state that uh, if he shows up, uh, you know, in D.C. wearing uh, more than two stars, he could be arrested. Wow. Okay, on that little note, I think we'll take our next break, and uh, we'll be back with Philip Farsberg right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And let's get back to our show in progress, which is Remembering Desert Storm and Desert Shield. Desert Shield came first. And uh, I think you mentioned the other day or last week that uh, you got a call and uh, it's no longer Desert Shield, it's Desert Storm. So uh, we want to salute you for your service, Phil, and all that you've done and what you've done for the your comrades in arm and uh, the veterans that you've helped along the way and uh, I uh, as it was raining last night I was praying for the veterans that are still out on the streets and it's a shame that any veteran has to make their home on the street that's it's just not right by the way we uh, we wanted to acknowledge one other thing is that we do a show called A Veteran's Place, and it's hosted by a medical doctor. He's also a dental surgeon, and uh, there are over 3 million veterans that have gone to the VA for oral health reasons, and the VA just totally ignores them. And uh, there is a... Not cure, but solution for uh, veterans suffering from PTSD that can't sleep at night. And there is a solution for that. And the VA has done zero, absolutely no research whatsoever on the effects of dental hygiene and dental Problems with regard to PTSD. So if you've just heard this message, please get a hold of your congressperson and let them know that 3 million veterans are suffering and don't have to be. It's the VA that's letting them down. So back to you, Phil. Yeah, you know, let's talk a little bit about about VA healthcare because it's uh, something I know a little bit about. Um, 
got a phone call uh, early yesterday morning from a veteran, and he wanted to know how he could get the VA to pay for his um, son's um, uh, hospital care because he had just had a heart attack the night before and had been admitted to the hospital. Uh, his son was a 100% service-connected disabled veteran. But you know, you don't have to be 100% uh, disabled, service-connected. You could just have an honorable discharge and still get health care from the VA. And uh, if you go on VA.gov, you'll find um, a link um, that will uh, for applying for VA health care. And uh, what you'll find is if you uh, don't have any disabilities but you are um, uh, make below a certain uh, uh, threshold of income that they'll provide you free health care. Um, but if you don't qualify for the uh, income threshold, uh, to get free health care from the VA, you simply have a deductible to pay, and you can get your health care from the VA. And this actually qualifies you under the Affordable Care Act um, that requires you to have health insurance. If you apply for that, you can get out of your expensive um, self-insurance that you're doing in order to satisfy the law. Now, I hate to point out it will not cover uh, dependents, only the veterans. <clears throat> but this is very important because if you if you uh, have a situation, if you're enrolled in VA health care and you have a situation like this where you have to be hospitalized, um, you can go and the VA will pay for it. But there's another catch. You have to... Um, you have to uh, pay, uh, you have to notify them within 72 hours. Uh, and uh, you can notify them that you've gone to urgent care within 72 hours. Now, this is not for um, the sniffles or a flu or, um, you know, you banged your shin or something like that if you go to urgent care for that. Uh, this is life or limb. You have to notify them within 72 hours of your going to the urgent care. You can either notify them yourself or have the caregiver notify them. And here's the mobile telephone number that they have. If everybody's ready, get that pencil that David told you to have and write this down. It's 844-724-7444. I'll say that one more time, 844-724-7842. If you get admitted to uh, urgent care, to like to a hospital, or you have to go somewhere for life or limb, you notify them within 72 hours, and the VA will pay for it. You may have a, a deductible, but trust me, it's a lot lower than what you'd be paying if you paid yourself. You know, Phil, uh, 
over the years, people have looked at the VA and, and, you know, been extremely critical of it and deservedly so. And when a person goes into the military, they sign a contract and the VA signs a contract with that same person that, that they will do certain things. And, um, it's been a shame and, and I'm trying to ask you, is that because the people that write some of the rules and regs for the VA never served in the military or do you think it's just, uh, bureaucracy that's, uh, making, well, turning the contract into a worthless piece of paper a lot of times? Well, you know, part of what you get when you uh, exchange your um, service, your labor, you know, you get compensation and uh, you get health care uh, as long as you're on active duty. Uh, and, you know, even your family gets health care and that's all very good. Um, but, you know, there's a system in place, it's been in place for, you know, centuries to take care of the health and welfare of our troops because they're critically important to us, um, you know, in the defense of our nation. So even in peacetime, they're all over uh, your health. And, you know, of course, there are certain conditions, if you have them, you're not deployable. So uh, they're, they're right on top of maintaining the health care of the troops. But once you leave the service, you know, there there is a there's part of the agreement that you have when you when you sign up is that they're going to um, live up to uh, your health care after you leave the service if, if you need them. And, um, you know, at that point, you're, you become a liability rather than an asset to the, the government. And so they treat you accordingly. I'll tell you this. There's a congressman from the 8th District of Ohio that uh, submitted a bill uh, about a week ago on the floor of the House. And the bill, and of course, he's, a, he's an Army veteran, and the bill that he introduced, if it were passed, uh, it's called the Lead by Example Act. And it says that uh, House and Senate uh how, uh, members of the House, members of the Senate, and their staff, and employees of the House or Senate, would get their health care through the VA. And, of course, the reason for that was to expose them to the uh, uh, level of service that is offered to our uh, veterans by the VA. And uh, I can tell you, uh, he offered that in the last Congress, uh, and uh, it uh, never saw the light of day, never came to a vote. And he's offering it now again in this Congress that started uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, all you hear is crickets um, because they don't want to be. They know they don't want to be subject to that level of. 
But, you know, what I'm talking about, this urgent care thing, this is, you, you go to the net, to, if you have life or limb issues, you go to the nearest facility that can handle it, and the VA is required to pick up the bill. I know a fellow who got bit on the foot by a shark while he was swimming in the Gulf of Mexico, and the bleeding was so bad they life-flighted him to a hospital, and he got a bill for $42,000, and the first the VA tried not to pay it, but uh, when he got his congressman involved, the VA paid it, and uh, that was off his shoulder. So this is an important thing for your listeners to know. And for you, you're a veteran, David. I want you to know that, too. Well, uh, I am a veteran, but we get no benefits because I was a reservist. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> um, we we can't. I can't use a VA facility uh, for a hospitalization or anything else. We we have no benefits. Unless something has changed drastically, but, uh, you know, when you, uh, even with an honorable discharge, uh, medical is not one of the benefits. Okay. Well, um, let me do some digging on that. (laughs) Okay. Um, I tell you what. If you were to dig up an answer to that that said, oh, no, you're wrong. Uh, uh, if you got an honorable discharge from uh, the National Guard or from Army Reserve or whatever, and you, you're, you're entitled to all benefits, uh, there would be such a rush on a VA hospital that... Uh, they couldn't handle it. It would be it would be a mob scene, but uh, they can't handle what they have now. I know, <laughs> and it would be worse. Uh, but this is uh, that was one. You know, they don't recognize because I was never deployed. They, whoever they is, I guess it's the government, really. Uh, you know, never in country or anything, so. Uh, oh, I know what it is, too. They look at you. If you didn't have, what is it, Phil, uh, 90 consecutive days or 100 consecutive days in the service, uh, you're not considered a veteran, per se, even though you, you served your time in the, in the Guard or in the Reserves. Yeah, it looks like uh, I'm looking here. Uh, you have to serve 24 months in a row without a break or your full active duty period uh, or you're discharged for a disability, discharged for a hardship. Um, let's see, it says... Uh, Time spent on active duty status for training purposes only for active duty purposes training only does not count toward the service requirement. So you would have to be um, called up 
and uh, engaged in um, uh, active military, naval, or air service, in call, including being called up from the National Guard or Reserve, did not receive a dishonorable discharge. Um, so, yeah, you have to have uh, 24 months, uh, not counting your basic and advanced training. Um, you'd have to, uh, and if you didn't have 24 months, you could have a disability discharge, a, a hardship discharge. Um, this says, are you served before September 7, 1980? Oh. <clears throat> but you didn't serve in the active military. No. Is that correct, dude? Correct. Other than for training. Do you remember there was a big brouhaha about this? Uh, and the and the government's real good about pulling the plug when you're getting close to uh, your number of days. But there was a big brouhaha when the uh, National Guard, New York, I think, Na- uh, New York State National Guard was called up for the... Uh, Postal strike. This was, this had to have been back in, gosh, uh, late sixties or mid sixties. I don't know the exact date, but anyway, when the, and they were on duty much longer than expected and they thought that it was going to give them the benefits that someone that's been deployed was given. And uh, it didn't, and the government pulled the plug right before the time would have allowed those reservists to take advantage of the uh, benefits. And uh, it caused quite a stink. Well, you know, the fix for something like that, David, is for veterans to... uh, Engage their elected representatives, and you know everybody. Uh, you know when I worked for National Guard Bureau on Capitol Hill, our motto was, "We have an armory in every district." Um, there's, you know, no no member of Congress can be seen can survive if they're seen as adversarial. To the National Guard or Reserves in their state, and so um, they need to, uh, you know, if this if this raises itself, then you need to make your elected representatives aware of the injustices, and you need to insist. Well, the the, the best way is for you to get together with an organized group like the Disabled American Veterans. The National Guard Association of the United States, the uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars, the um, American Legion, you know, all of these are interest groups, and they're not just uh, clubs to play cards and drink beer, but they have lobbyists that will um, enforce this and, and make the changes, and that's why we have what we have, because veterans have organized and, and done this kind of thing in the past. 
I've been surprised that uh, reservists have gotten what they've gotten, which is not much, but, uh, you know, they didn't get the educational benefits, which I thought would have been at least fair. Uh, but they have gotten some things, and, uh, you know, you just, <laughs> you never know. And uh, is it better to serve your time in one block or spread it out over six years or, you know, I don't have the answer to it. Uh, I know reservists, as we're seeing today, can be called up and... Uh, Certainly all the ones that have been called up and served and, and, uh, or been deployed, uh, they will get the full package of benefits. I have no doubt. In fact, I know they will. Uh, but, you know, what's the old saying? Life's not fair. need to use their uh, the resources that they have and of course the, some of the best resources are the uh, these interest groups these organizations so what my advice is get involved do the research and find out what these um, what these organizations can do for you. Very important. If you're in the National Guard, you uh, really ought to be a member of your state National Guard Association. <laughs> you know, I hate to say this, but they do such a good job, I didn't even know there was one. National Guard Association, and there's uh, is there an uh, Army Reserve Association? Uh, yes, in fact, there is. There's an Association of Reserve. There's a Reserve Officers Association. Um, there's uh, you know, <clears throat> different groups. Uh, you know, I was always a little bit. Uh, concerned about you know people want me to be members of organizations that had at their core the interest of supporting you know defense contractors Boeing Raytheon uh, you know <laughs> um, you know I'm more interested in joining an organization that uh as the, the interest of its individual members, not its corporate members, uh, at heart. And, uh, and, you know, because of my time spent on Capitol Hill, I have a, a pretty fair uh, ability to assess who exactly uh, is benefiting from my membership. Well, I believe Phil's moving to his car at the moment. 
Would that be a fair assumption, uh, Phil? So, with that being said, uh, you know, there are associations, obviously, like Phil has pointed out, that uh, uh, many of which I knew nothing about. And uh, with uh, the shows that we do, I'm going to be checking into it and uh, find out what is available and what they are doing for uh retired or folks that uh, got their honorable discharge from uh, one of the reserve units or National Guard units or whatever. And uh, is Phil back with us or is he still in his... Dave, I think I'm back with you. Yeah, there you go. Sounds good. Can you hear me? Yeah, you okay. sounding good. I told you we might have a little hiccup there, but uh, I'm back. Well, you're sounding sounding very good, and we've got just a couple of about three minutes to go, and uh, then you can be off and running, or you you maybe already be off and running. I'm already off and running, David. <laughs> I let out any kind of soul language could be because I'm driving here in Georgia. Since uh, hands free, if there are any uh, Georgia law enforcement officers listening, I'm hands free driving this time. Well, good, but uh, uh, you, you've probably been off and running uh, right after Reveille at uh, 5 this morning. <laughs> no, it's the first time I've left the house. Ah. But, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, I don't want this uh, this time to go to the show to, to pass without uh, emphasizing for those who've served that uh, they should really have themselves evaluated uh, for uh, stability claims they might have from their service. You know, I was going through some uh, old videos today that were on my hard drive from back when I was on active duty, and they wanted to discuss about uh, dealing with troops that were returning from Afghanistan and Iraq and the the difficulties they might uh, encounter and the um, uh, things like post-traumatic stress and flashbacks and uh, traumatic brain injury. But, you know, in order to claim a disability uh, from the VA, you don't you don't have to have served in combat. You don't have to have ever left the country. You do uh, have to have served and had an honorable discharge. Um so it's an important, and um, I suggest that every uh, every veteran out there get in touch with a service officer from disabled American veterans, the veterans of foreign wars, the uh, uh, American Legion, or state agency that your state has probably set up for veterans dealing with the VA and to help them navigate their benefits. I believe every state has one except for two, those being Indiana and Alaska, if I'm not mistaken. And why, I do not know. Interesting. Uh, I guess the one thing I I don't want to leave 
people with uh, false hope. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Phil and I talked it through pretty well today. And uh, there are, you know, you just need to check with a service officer. It's as simple as that. And uh, they can probably give you an answer fairly quickly. And uh, then you have to go from there with the decisions you have to make. But, uh, uh, you know, there was a time when when uh, folks that had been deployed and served in NAM uh, had zero respect for reservists. But now it's come around, and they, the new term is the I served during the Vietnam era. And uh, so there's... More and more folks are recognizing, particularly because of today, where we'd be if there wasn't a reserve unit or wasn't reservists across the country. And um, there was not a, a time in my six years that I couldn't have been called up. And only by the grace uh, I wasn't called up. But uh, there are a lot of reservists right now that are in Iraq and uh, in foreign countries around the world because their specialty happened to be needed. And so you always you always have that over your head that you could be called up. And in many ways, it's tougher on the reservists than it is on, you know, on the person that uh, is on active duty. With that being said, yeah. though, we've got to go. It's... All right, David. I really enjoyed today's show. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. And we will talk soon, I'm sure. Thank you, Phil. All right. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.